Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Full Course Show Jumping Podcast. I'm Will Fletcher and as always I'm with Sam Gerard May. And this week we've got two fantastic guests. We've got the show jumping legend that is John Whitaker, and in part two we catch up with Team GB performance manager and chef to keep, Di Lampard. We're delighted to have join us on the podcast this week, one of the greats of world show jumping. He's won 24 championship medals in his career. It is the great John Whitaker. John, thank you for coming on our podcast. Hi, pleasure. All the best, thank you. Obviously, John, it's not normal for you to be at home for such a long period of time. How have you been spending your time recently? Well, we've just been uh, tidying the place up, uh, power washing, painting, been fencing, fixing gates. Today I've been doing spraying weeds. So much to do, actually, so much to do that we never have time to do. And so we're catching up on all that stuff, really. Good. And uh, before the stoppage of shows, you were out with Villamora while I was there and you had a great show and especially with Unique de Fragport taking second in the three-star Grand Prix there where I thought it jumped super. Uh, did you feel you after such a strong start, you know, that horse could have taken a big step forward this year? Yeah, definitely. Uh, like you say, jumped great in Villamora. You know, I've had him about a year now and... Um... He did some quite good things last year, but it was difficult to get him jumping really consistently. I felt like, um, you know, every week he was really good. You know, every class I jumped him in, I I just knew exactly what I was doing with him, and he was responding. And I was even thinking after Villamora to go on to the Sunshine Tour. Luckily, we didn't because that was cancelled. Definitely, yeah, that was uh, that was yeah. quite something that happened over there. But, you know, yeah. we were, you, John, are great of the sport. You've been part of it for such a long time and, you know, you've had results back way back before and you're still up in the, you know, up in, right in the top still now, you know. How do you, have you managed to keep that sustained level throughout the years? I don't know, I've... Um... I've been lucky with my body, you know, it stands up to the the, the riding every day. I, I mean, to be honest, sometimes I wake up with aches and pains and I get on horse and I feel fine. <laughs> so I think my body's kind of developed around the horse's back, you know. <laughs> so uh, it's true, actually, you know, you know, as you get older, you do get aches and pains and... Uh, but when I actually get on horse, I ride about three horses every day at the moment. Normally I ride more, but at the moment I'm just riding three. And I'm absolutely fine when I'm on a horse, you know. Maybe your body's just taken to the shape of a horse. That's what it is, John. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you know, um, a lot of riders kind of suffer with back problems and, and knee problems and various things. But luckily, you know, my body's up to it so that's you know that's uh, been lucky with that fantastic obviously we'll mention a minute ago that you've been involved with the sport for many years how do you think the sport of show jumping has changed in that time well it's changed massively um it's so professional now there's so much money involved the horses and riders are so good uh just unbelievable, you know, 
trying to think of, think of, think of a good example, you know. Mm. Uh, you, you you walk even in Villamora, you know, you walk the course and two two or three star level. You walk the course and you think, blooming out, this this is a big course and people just go around, you know. It, the standard is just so good. Every, you know, everywhere. There's big there's, you know, when things are normal you you could get three or four big shows every weekend and there's Fifty plus riders at every one, and they're all good. You know, <laughs> you know, the sports developed so fast. Surprisingly, now it's incredible how it's changed. You've mentioned obviously a few of the highlights there about professionalism and the prize money and those changes. You, as a rider, have you had to adapt anything in your career to change with the times? I think I've just adapted without realising it. You know, uh, you keep up with the times, you watch the younger riders, and you and you can, you know, you you, you either keep up with them or you fall by the wayside. There. I think I actually think I ride much better now than I did twenty or thirty years ago. <laughs> Probably don't win as much. Probably, yeah, a little bit horsepower. Probably don't do stupid things like win or you know win or die kind of situations. <laughs> but I actually think riding wise, I ride. I, I have a better position. Video of me jumping now these days, and like twenty years ago, my position much better. Um. So yeah, I think I think that's kind of doing much enough to. Uh, Change with the times, yeah, move with the times. And do you think the type of horses at the top level have changed through the years? Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I started, like, a good example is Ryan Sun, you know, he was a, well, Harvey Smith described him as a, a cart horse with a thoroughbred engine. You know, those horses you don't see anymore. <laughs> you know. Um, they're all bred for the sport. They're spotted, you know, even before broken in, you know, people um, they have scouts like, you know, like the footballers are looking for talent all the time. Well, it's in show jumping, you know, the scouts with videos looking for young horses and uh, nothing very much slips the net, you know. You, you, um, they bred for the sport and they trained for the sport, and and that's how it is from you know from an early age. So the the they have, yeah it's it's changed massively. Obviously, we know that you've been involved with the riding yourself, but also as a parent as well with Robert, Louise, and Joanne, your children, all going into the industry and riding themselves. Is that something that you always wanted, or did you ever think maybe they should try and get a and in inverted commas here proper job, as it were? I think they should. They should all get proper jobs, actually. But <laughs> um, no, I mean when they were kids, we used to tie them on the neck and ride, but. <laughs> Uh, uh, we encourage them to ride and to do the same as what we're doing because it, it's kind of a, a full-time 
seven day, 24 hour day job, you know, and uh, if, if you've got three kids that all want to do different things, it's it would make life really difficult. So we encourage them to ride and, and, and push them into it a little bit. Luckily, they're all really keen and they all, they've all been, you know, quite successful and, um, and we're all doing, and, and most importantly, we're all doing the same thing, which is nice, you know, and they can learn from my mistakes. I can help them. Well, well I try to help them, but they don't listen. <laughs> <laughs> but the, they've got all the facilities that I've built up over the years to use, and uh, it, it's nice that we're all doing the same thing and we're, and we're all working as a family, actually. So it's what I wanted, really, and, it, and it's turned out that way, so it's really nice. And sticking with family, you and Michael, you dominated sport for years. How were your relationship between you and uh, you and Michael through those years? Yeah, okay, we've had a really good relationship right from the start. Um, actually, I'm five years older than Michael, so there's a bit of a there's a bit of a gap between us. But um, I think it's been good for both of us, you know. Um, Apart from being able to help each other and support each other and and compete against each other, you know, it's like you get situations where you think, well, I mean, Michael won the Ixted Derby when he was 20, which was unbelievable at the time. And I was so pleased for him. And, but I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. So, you know, like a couple of years later, I managed to win it. So it we give us, we give each other confidence, you know, in that respect. And uh, so, apart from helping each other, you know, we, we we still try to beat each other, you know, just like any other competitor. But it's um, if I don't win, I'll have to see Michael win, and I'm sure it's the same for Michael. And famously, the pinnacle of your two rivalry was in 1989 at the Europeans, where you and Michael took gold and silver and you jumped the clear, which forced Michael in having to jump clear to retain that gold medal. But he had one down and dropped him into silver. You know, how was, you know, the exchange of words after that, where obviously the absolute pinnacle of the sport, you just nipped ahead of him. Yeah. What, what was the exchange of words at that moment? Yeah, it was kind of bittersweet, really. I mean, you know, I want, I really wanted to win, but I didn't want Michael to lose either, if you know what I mean. You yeah. know, like previous Europeans in Dina in France, uh, I think on the, on the final day I was second or third and Michael was one behind me there. And, and I got a bronze and Michael got nothing. Mm. And, I remember the night before the final in Rotterdam in '89. We said, we just said to each other, "Well, you know, at least if one of us wins, it'll be all right." That's what we said to each other, and and um, you know, Michael made the uh, Michael just made one mistake, and I didn't, and and that was the difference, you know. And uh, I, obviously, it was great to win, and it's. Uh, something that stands stands out in my memory forever. But it was still so, a shame for Michael not to win, if you know what I mean. 
No, absolutely. And I think there you mentioned that as a standout moment. But looking back at your career, you've won 24 championship medals and so many Grand Prix wins. I can't even begin to count how many. If you had to pick a few moments that stood out for you, which would they be? I think that the one we've just been talking about, uh, Rotterdam in 89, was kind of stands out because uh, I've been kind I've been kind of knocking on the door in championships. I've been seconds and thirds and, and um, thinking to myself, am I ever going to win a championship, you know? So to actually win, you know, a big championship was, um, you, know, you know, another, what, what's, this, what's the saying? Another notch on the stick, you know? Hmm. Uh, it was a goal that I'd been aiming for, and, and to finally do it was, uh, you know, a relief, I suppose, a relief, yeah. And any particular Grand Prix wins that you've had that mean a little bit more than the others? Um, no, no, I mean, I kind of look at this part and think, well, I'm going to a show, and if I win... I've done my job. If I don't win, then I haven't done my job. <laughs> <laughs> I wish it was that you know, simple but, for me. <laughs> no, so kind of dealing with the not winning is is more difficult than dealing with the winning, actually, you know. But all good. Any, you know, whatever you win, if you win, whatever you can manage to win, it's good. And, you know, like obviously to win something like Ark and Calgary is a bit extra good, I suppose, yeah. Talking a little bit about the not winning, like you said, are there any particular Grand Prix that, for one reason or another, just seem to slip your grasp? Yes, one in particular, the Grand Prix Olympia. I, I won the World Cup Olympia a couple of, couple of three times, maybe a couple of times anyway. But the Grand Prix just kind of managed, kind of managed that one some, for some reason. I've been second at least once. Uh, so that, that'd be one that I'd like to, to win. I'm running out of time, actually. <laughs> this this year is think... not looking very good either, is it? So. <laughs> Who knows? But I suppose you have won pretty much every <laughs> other Grand Prix and medal there is to win in the sport. So, you know, you can't be doing that badly, John. <laughs> I'm not complaining, but it will be a good one to win before I get to 70. Absolutely. I think in your career, you've jumped so many courses. What would be the biggest ever course that you've jumped? I think probably the biggest was... I don't know, because sometimes they look really big, but then it depends on the point of your career, you know. Um they all look big, so you know. You know, like I said earlier, you walk it nowadays. You walk a course, and, you, and it also depends what you're riding. But sometimes, yeah. if you're riding not, not very good, off, they look even bigger. You know, <laughs> but, it's because you've grown over the years, John. That's what it is. But I think Barcelona Olympics was definitely one of the biggest. I actually think the substitute Olympics in Rotterdam, in also in Rotterdam, but that was in 1980. At the time, that just seemed absolutely massive. 
the Los Angeles Olympics in 84 just seemed like it was massive. It'd be interesting to, you know, probably to look at the statistics and see which was the re- actually actually the biggest. But I think Barcelona Olympics individual on the final day was probably the biggest, actually. So moving on from there, then, we've mentioned moments in your career. But now let's talk a little bit about the horses that you've had. And there's been so many greats over the years. The one for me that was the most memorable and for most people would be the great Milton. Tell us a little bit about what he was like. He was just a dream horse, really. Something, you know, one once in a lifetime horse that uh, kind of got by chance, if you like. Um, through somebody else's misfortune. Um, and he was just, uh, you know, he was just like a machine. He loved the job. He wanted to do it. He was uh, always looking for the next fence, never looking for a way out, always. He was the same every day of his life, you know, never in a bad mood. You mentioned a little bit about how Milton came to the yard. Can you expand a bit on that? Yeah, he came He came to me when he was eight years old. It was Caroline Bradley... Uh, acquired him as a foal, and she 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 started him off in his career as, as a four and five year old. Tragic, tragically, Caroline died, and um, so so Milton came to me, and the first fence I jumped in, he came to me after an injury actually. So I'd had him like three or four months while he was recovering from an injury and one day I was got I was tempted to jump him so I jumped him over a crossbow and I can honestly say when I jumped the crossbow on him I knew he was a very very good horse just the feeling I had his attitude the way he left the floor the way he landed everything about him I knew he was a very good horse and did you was it definitely then you knew he was going to do as much as he did, or was there any particular class along the way which you know would have cemented his legacy as one of the best horses there's ever been? No, I mean you know it, you never know jumping across ball that superstars, <laughs> but I had a feeling like I've never had before, and I did a couple of small shows with him, and I think. It took me, like I think it was his third international show I did. I started off in smaller classes, the first show, the first international show I did, and by the third one, he, he won the World Cup. <laughs> you know, so it, we, we, we didn't mess about. We were straight there, you know. Fantastic. And moving on from there, let's go back to the early days, John. Tell us a little bit about how you started out riding when you were younger. Yeah, like most kids, um, I got a pony when I was five. Okay, my parents were farm. My father was a farmer, so you know that's a bit of a start where you've got somewhere to keep a pony. You know, like most kids don't have anywhere to keep them. Um, so for some reason, I wanted a pony. 
my mother was really horsey. She wasn't really, she could ride and she knew the basics. She knew how, well, she knew how to ride. But she wasn't really a show jumper. So she encouraged me and my brothers. In the beginning, my father wasn't so keen because he wanted every blade of grass for his milk cows. <laughs> <laughs> so he wasn't that keen in the beginning but once he saw that he's you know that we're all quite keen and we're keeping us out of trouble he, he kind of um, encouraged us then and at what point did you realise that you were going to ride professionally I don't know it was kind of a natural progress really you know we did like old kids we went through the pony stage rope ponies we did Jim Carners and Pony Club and all, you know, like just the stuff that all kids do, Aussie kids do. And um, when I left school at 16, I did a milk round. When I finished milk round, I, I rode my horses. And then over, you know, a period of time, people used to send me horses to ride and well, the horses took over the milk round, you know. <laughs> Pass the milk round down to my next brother. I'm sure show jumping's very happy that 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 happened. <laughs> but um, can you remember your first big win? Yes, I can remember it absolutely vividly. It was the Cock of the North, the Great Yorkshire Show, yeah. And which was that on? That was on Ryan's son. Because... I had two horses at that time, uh, two seven-year-olds, Ryan Sun and Singing Wind. They were, they were both only seven. And we were kind of a bit ambitious entering the Yorkshire show. So, you know, um, anyway, the first day at the Yorkshire show, it went really bad, not good anyway. Not really bad, but not good. I had a few down and, you know, it's, it's um, you just feel like everybody's watching you. Well, they are. Everybody is watching you, and you've got your friends and your family. And I just felt like I make a made a complete ash of it the first day, and I didn't really want to go back again. But my father talked me into it. He said, "You will have to. We'll have to go back because we've paid the entry fees." <laughs> Sounds like my dad. <laughs> yeah. So I went back the next day and I won uh, both classes the next day with two seven-year-olds beating kind of Harvey Smith and David Broom and Graham Fletcher and all the, you know, the the good riders. And then came out the last day and won the cock of the nose. You've mentioned some of the names in there of sort of the riders of that generation, Harvey Smith, David Broom and, and Graham Fletcher. But when you were younger, which riders did you look up to the most? All of them, really. Um, like, obviously, Harvey Smith and David Broom were um, <clears throat> unbelievably good at that time. But I watched <laughs> all the riders. Like, we just mentioned Graham. Like, Graham, Graham was actually really really good in in those days you know in his early days he was unbeatable he had some fantastic horses and he was he was uh, very very good but the also in those days in that when i when i was in my late teens early 20s there was 
so many good riders on the circuit, on the county county show circuit. Like, you could probably take me half an hour to reel them all off, but people, <laughs> Caroline Bradley, <laughs> Malcolm Fire, I mean, the Edgars were phenomenal outfit, you know, in those days. Um, there's so many good riders to watch, and I, I kind of watched them all and tried to pick up little bits from each one that, um, you know, I, th- I thought could help me, you know, a little like Caroline Bradley was unbelievable up with a with a flat work. Uh, watching people like David Brown was unbelievable to watch against the clock, you know, turning back to fences. So I tried to take little bits off, off all the different riders, like actually Graham Fletcher was, he used to ride nearly every single horse in a, a Eggbutt Snaffles. He had a, everything in Eggbutt egg Snaffles. And I thought, how can he ride every single horse? And I thought, well, it's his old groom, Miley. He just used the same bridle on every horse. <laughs> yeah, he's told me the story at Bath and West. He... He went. To, he went there, and he. It was back then. It was the the big class, all on BBC TV, and he he rocked up, and he had one saddle and two bridles between three horses. Three of them went into the jump off, and there was only five in the jump off, and they had to wait for him because well, he only had the sack on him. <laughs> so he had to, the TV cameras were just rolling, watching him tack up his horses, which I can say over time he hasn't got better at. The Graham Bridle goes. Does he not ride? Do you know which end the badly goes on? Oh, no. <laughs> but he tries to keep out of that, but his, his advice on the sidelines is, is, well, it's great when you're going well, but it makes you think if you're not doing so well. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, anyway, uh, um, I learned a lot from watching, you know, lots of different riders. But I, I suppose, realistically, Harvey, Harvey Smith and David Brown were, were, you know, like superstars in those days. And, uh, but I used to watch everything, every little thing that every single rider did, you know. And try to learn from it. Definitely. And looking back over the years, you were part of some excellent championship teams, which you know we've highlighted before. But the core of yourself, your brother Michael and Nick Skelton, it highlighted by three straight European team gold. How confident were you as a team going into a championship with all of you guys as a team? Yeah, I think we we were a very good team. Um, and I, I would say we were quietly confident. You know, I think... Um, um, and I also have to say, Ronnie Mazzarella was unbelievable manager, especially keep at the time, like he... He, he could kind of handle us. He knew how to get the best out of us. You know, and um, and I think he, he was actually very special. Ronnie Mazzarella, but but no, we had a we had a we had a great few years with uh, me, Michael and Nick, yeah. We um of course when you've got a you know, when you've got Milton in your team it it definitely helps. Definitely. And if you could pinpoint one, you, which do you think was the best team you ever jumped on? I think this this one, Michael, Nick, myself and Malcolm Pyron and Angles are 
Um, I, th- I think that was nearly the best team I jumped on. Yeah. Was was that the year that I think you won the European gold by over twenty faults, which to me just sounds remarkable. It would, uh, yeah. Was it St Gallen or? I think it was eighty three. It could have been St Gallen. I'm not. I think it, yeah. I think it was. Yeah, I think that was probably. Um, I mean, Malcolm was exceptional, and Angles out was a a, a, a superstar, and I think. Um, I can't remember which horse Michael ran in. No, but anyway, I think that was probably the best team. And moving on from the best team, what about the best year of your career? I'm not sure. Maybe 89 was always very good winning the Europeans. Um, I think uh, money-wise, I'm not sure. I think 90 or 91. At one point, I had uh, Milton and Granouche, and Granouche was also a, an absolute superstar. So I think ninety or ninety-one, but those those few years Fun. from eighty-nine to kind of ninety-five was exceptionally good. But with all the success that you've had in your career, obviously that comes with that. There's going to be a lot of challenges along the way. Do you have any that come to mind? Uh, not really. I mean, uh, just how to spend the money really was a bit of a problem. <laughs> no, no, I'm joking there. Not really. No, you know, when you're on a on a roll and things are going well, you just you just get on with it. You just enjoy it, basically. No, um, no, not really. No problem. <laughs> Perfect. No challenges. <laughs> Perfect. And, you know, over the years, I'm sure, with so much years of experience, there must have been a couple of mishaps and or a funny moment or two in the ring. Are there any in particular that stand out? There's probably quite a lot. That One one that, thinking about it earlier, one, one that springs to mind was <clears throat> in those years when I had Milton, we were in, we were in uh, show in Zurich. And it was a really big, big money, big indoor show. And uh, I won the I won the big class on the Saturday evening. And Nick Skelton been at the show all week, and he hadn't won a penny. And they had a affair really on Sunday morning. So Nick was like really, really focused about the fair, really, because they haven't won this, they haven't won this thing all weekend. So he was really focused on the fair, really, but it was at half past eight in the morning, 8.30 in the morning. I turned up late, didn't know the course, didn't walk the course. It was one of those fair relays where you have to change the stick over. The first ladder jumps you down, and then the second one goes, you, you hand the stick over and the second one goes round. So Nick's trying to earn his expenses in this class. Jumps in, I was still half asleep. He jumps his round unbelievable, passed the stick to me, and I dropped it. So he's fuming, he's fuming. 
He says, get off that effing arse and pick that... Moving on from there, obviously earlier on you mentioned the riders in your career that have inspired you. But from doing these podcasts, we've spoken to many different riders and a lot of them have mentioned you as their role model or favourite rider, for example, to look up to. And so many of the world's best riders, actually, at that. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel good, actually. It's nice that... Um, it's nice to get high compliments from your, from your fellow competitors. Yeah, no, it's, it, 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 it makes me feel good. <laughs> and the thing that most people talk, to, uh, talk about when you know, talking about your riding and admiring it is how smooth you are and how much of a horseman you are. Is there, you know, how do you manage to achieve that? I don't know, really. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I just um, like we were saying earlier, I, I tried to pick bits off different riders and if you know, see somebody that I like the way they ride, and I tried to copy, and uh, I just kind of blended into the way I ride. Not, it wasn't. I didn't actually go out to, to set out to the uh, rider. It just kind of turned out that way, you know. Just, just feeling, just the, you know, just my natural feeling. And I believe, you know, I think. To be good at this sport, you have to understand the horses. You have to try and be a horseman and, you know, try and get into the minds and figure out how they tick. And I've always thought, you know, when you find a good horse, look after it and and try and make it last. I think that's a really good point to make. And when you're training horses at home, John, what do you think is the most important thing? I think the most important thing is to keep them happy. So, um, we do we do a lot of fitness work, but we try and do different things every day with them. So, try and give them a, a, as much of a normal life as we can. You know, we put them in the fields and uh, we take them on rides, and uh, we do a lot of kind of fitness work rather than try not to just keep going around in circles with them. You know, we keep trying to keep them interested. And I just have to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, John. We've learnt loads and it's been great to hear from you. But my dad did say that I had to ask you before you left about trying to get to Hickstead in some not-so-great horse boxes. Well, yeah, we've, we haven't had much luck over the years getting from home to Hickstead. The very first time I we went to Hickstead, I was 16. <clears throat> and I was in the Junior Fox Hunter final. We actually qualified at Sheffield, and Sheffield was kind of manageable with from Huddersfield. You know, we could do that. But <laughs> <laughs> so my father said, "Well, Ixter, it's nearly, it's nearly the. You get, nearly can't get much further than Ixter." From he said, "We'd better leave in good time." So we left three days before, and we got there <laughs> an hour before the class. <laughs> Luckily, I got there in time to jump because everything went wrong. The truck broke down, the floor fell out of the horse box, everything absolutely, everything went wrong. It, well, it, it took us three days to get there. Another time we set off from home, 
with three trucks, myself and, and two brothers. And one truck made it, and that was me, my truck made it. I got there, and then I, I'm thinking, where are the other two? And they didn't turn up. <coughs> we didn't have mobile phones in those days. So somebody pulled into the showground and said, oh, one of your trucks is at um, Luton, and the other one's at Leicester. <laughs> so I went back and told one in, and one never one one never did make it. So we got two trucks there, and one finished up getting towed home. So we've had, we've had some experiences there. A huge thanks there to John Whitaker for joining us in part one of the podcast. I don't know about you, Will, but it was really great to hear about his amazing career. I mean, John is a true legend of the sport. Watching him always, he's fantastic. And he's got so many medals and so many stories. It's, it's brilliant to have him on. And, you know, we've also got another part with Di Lampard, the performance manager, which was great to record and had, she had some really interesting views. What a delight to have join us in part two of the podcast. Team Great Britain's performance manager and chef to keep, Di Lampard. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Good morning. My pleasure. And thank you very much for joining us, Di. It's a pleasure. And, you know, as team manager of Great Britain, you were head of the team that qualified for the Olympics last year and won that team bronze. Um, how much of a relief was that? Yes, it was a relief. However... I was fairly confident going into Rotterdam, actually. I had learned a lesson from 2015 in Arken when we went with the, the goal to get the team, the British team, qualified for Rio. And, um, you know, we set our sights on qualifying and just missed out from the bronze medal by point three. So uh, the closer we got to Rotterdam... I started to motivate the team and, and get them with their sights purely on getting a medal. So I was quite confident with that team that we could get a medal with, with a bit of luck. And obviously recently we got the news that the Olympics has been postponed to, to next year. How do you think that has affected the British team? Um, it's very disappointing. It's very disappointing for all athletes. Um, again, I got my team in my mind and I was quite happy to see how, and the season was unfolding nicely for, for the team, actually, that I, I got in, in my mind, in my squad. And, um, yes, it's, it's, it's disappointing, but now they're focused on 21. And yeah, obviously we've also heard recently that, the Europeans has fallen because of the virus in 2021. Do you have any thoughts on that? Very disappointing. Um, we've had a lot of work being going on with the Chef de Keeps, with, from all other nations, not just the European Chef de Keeps, all round. Um, we have a WhatsApp group. We've been emailing and at present discussing uh, with the FEI. We've got a, a, a representative um, Hendrik, the Swedish chef, is is representing us with the FEI probably as we speak this morning to try and to get them to to review the situation. Um, it was we found a real shame that they didn't consult everybody, the stakeholders. We we spend our time going around the world 
to various chef to keep meetings when we we're not meeting at shows um, and keep the FEI informed with ways we'd like to help steer the sport going forward and it was a real shock when they came out with a decision as premature as they did however yeah. we don't know the inside story yet we don't know whether it's financial or or why so we have to be careful exactly and fingers crossed we managed to get you know so a bit more clarity on decision or managed to get a review in so hopefully we can have a another look at that because i'm sure it's disappointing for yourself yes with absolutely very disappointing um to, to go two years without a championship would be a, a real loss for, for the horse world. You know, to think that um, partnerships aren't going to get these accolades and um, that they, it's also the motivation that everybody needs at the moment. Everybody needs encouraging, something to look forward to. And I think it was really encouraging, even if we were to run two championships, had it been possible mm-hmm. in a year, because we certainly... Um, speaking for Team GBR, we're in a stronger position to field two teams now. No, that's great. And hopefully we manage to get something along the lines of, like, I think we'd all ideally like to have that. But, you know, just going back to the beginning of your your time as team manager, how did the job come around? Um, well, it was an, an advertised position, actually. Um and um, something that actually being in sport, you know, several months before you knew it was going to become available, it, but it, it was advertised. And obviously we hear a lot about team manager and chef to keep, but what responsibilities do you have, Di, other than obviously the picking the teams that go to the Nations Cup, the Championships and the Olympics? Um, yes, it's a good question, actually, um, because a lot of people just see you heading as a chef to keep and, you know, they're here and everybody has their views about the selections. But uh, the, the roles of um, a performance manager, which is my position because I, I'm employed by the world class programme. Um, is is formulating um, training for the young riders that that are on the squad, but also the bigger picture, um, leading and encouraging um, training programmes for ponies, juniors, young riders as well. You know, and uh, there's also structuring and managing the team around the the world-class programme. You know, we have... Um, a vet, we have physios, both human and equine, saddle fitters, and the whole package, the doctors, the sports site, and actually organising yard visits to the athletes that, that want them, that want these various different specialists in the sport, and also organising which events they attend and which events that, um, international events or, or national events that they do. So we've heard more about sort of the responsibilities that you have as team manager, but what would the day-to-day be like for you? Very different. They're very different. No, no two days are usually the same. Obviously, in these unpresented times, um, 
it's pretty well the same. But um, some days I'm off to the airport really early, spend a lot of hours in the airport, a few hours on, on an airplane going to competitions and going to competitions, not only the CSIO shows with the teams, but also going and looking at partnerships, looking at new partnerships. Um, I go on the, some of the tours as well. But whenever possible, getting out to national shows and looking at even the young horses coming through, which is, is a big part. It doesn't get an awful lot of time for watching young horses unless they are a part of, um, you know, the bigger shows, really. But um, I can have days in the office sitting, planning, looking at the season when, when we know which Nations Cups we have, planning around um, bespoke um, plan for every partnership that I would like to see in a team and, and talking to the riders and seeing how the season unfolds and, and let's see if we can come to um, a solution between us to, to, to get the best out of the partnerships at the shows that we want for them. So I think it's safe to say that although you're not at the shows now, there's still very much a high amount of planning that goes into obviously next year's Olympics and hopefully when the sport resumes as Lots well. Lots of it. Um, we were well on the road for Tokyo, but yes, I mean, the amount of work that goes into that, um, it's, it's like the container um, that goes with all the, the solid materials in it that we're going to need, like sort of... Um, mucking out equipment, uh, tables, chairs, physio beds, all things like that goes in a container early in March out because it goes by sea out to whatever championships we go because obviously it's slightly more reasonably priced than flying um, this this equipment out, the heavier um, equipment out to the horses. So there's all this preparation and pulling together what everybody needs to get into that container um, it's feed and, you know, we, we speak with our, our specialists within the world-class programme and it all has to be licensed and passed so all the individual horses can have their diets out there ready and waiting at championships and it goes the same for the hay and the haylage as well. And um, booking everybody's, I personally don't do the booking, but um, liaising the... When, when athletes, grooms, vets, physios fly out, the whole support group. And then it's all block booked going out to championships. So there's always plenty, plenty to do along with um, the various conference calls that we have and meetings that we have. Um, and you've also, before that, you had an excellent riding career and have been on four championship teams. Uh, on your riding career, could you single down to your favourite memory? Oh, my favourite memory. Um, Rome, I would imagine. The World Equestrian Games in Rome in 1998 was fantastic. Um, the, the whole experience was good and and I think it shows the whole experience of the training beforehand, the actual travelling out there. We travelled, um, the four riders travelled out with Chef to Keep, Ronnie Bazzarella and um, we, we drove down through Italy in a 
tiny little car and we were cramped in three in the back and, and the luggage in this small car. I don't know how we got the luggage in and how we managed to travel so many hours for two days um, down there. But it was like, it was like tobogganing, you know, we were, we were in there. It was, that was really good fun. And um, for me, it was one of, one of the high points in my career because not only did we get the bronze medal, but I finished 11th individually, which, which was really nice. But it, the whole experience was good. And from there, was a team manager something that you always wanted to do? Definitely not. It never, never came, <laughs> you know, into the picture whatsoever. Um, and, you know, when it did come available, I had built quite um, a yard at home and changed from a competition yard into a coaching facility. We'd built our house for the pupils that we had staying. Um, we built another house. We'd extended the, the, the indoor school and the stables. And it was this was the last thing that had really come into mind. And we did this in 2011. I think the house was finished for London 2012. And I had some involvement with, with the teams then because I was deputy chef with Rob, my predecessor, Rob Herkstra. And... Um, co-selector as well so I'd been involved a few years from from Rob's start but it was actually quite nice it was a nice change and not the responsibility is what it is now sort of being head but um no definitely never crossed my mind no I was quite happy the way the business was going at home Obviously, as we've touched on briefly, you've had a successful riding career and you've been team manager as well. Which of those do you think is more nerve-wracking? Um, team managing. Because you, <laughs> when you're riding, you've only, you've only got yourself to please and um, you, you make those calls. Um, for, for a team, I feel very responsible for the, the fives that go to a show. But... You know, if you look at it the other way, it's wonderful as well because I've always enjoyed Nations Cups tremendously. It was a big part of my riding career that I really look forward to Nations Cup Day. And now I'm very fortunate because I get to go around it four times with it, you know. So um, I look at it like that. I thoroughly enjoy it. I thoroughly enjoy the Cups. But, yes, it is more – it's certainly a lot more tense and nerve-wracking when you're standing outside of the arena and you're watching somebody inside, yes. Mm. I can imagine it would be. And you've mentioned Nations Cups quite a bit. And when you plan for those Nations Cups, how does the selection process begin? Well, it varies. The the bigger cups, you can outline the riders that you would like very early in the year. Then, of course, you have to watch the form, how the horses come into a new season, because horses change you you have you have horses that really have a great year they really peak and you know horses actually some horses that like certain shows and peak at certain times of the year so it's interesting how you put it all together and this this planning starts at the beginning of, of the year if you like you know it can start as early as as february and then for some of the 
um, two star, um, sorry, three star nations cups, four star nations cups, to give opportunity to the to the new partnerships or the younger riders. Yes, with the younger riders, you look a little bit on what they did the year before, but then you look how they're coming out this year in the early shows, the spring tours, how they're competing, how they're building their horses up. So three weeks prior, we've always selected a team, the latest, the closest three weeks prior, but um, you have a very good outline in, in your mind of who you would like to go where. And what would you say is like the hardest part of picking a team? I think the hardest part is is leaving somebody out, that picking the four, picking the five it happens. That happens because normally somebody else is going to a show either after the one you're picking or, or you have a different plan. That when you get to a show um, or in some cases before you go to a championship, you pick the four before you, you go. And that's the hard bit is telling the fifth person. And, um, you know, it's, it's great with the experience I have because I've been there as well. So um, I always tell the fifth person first and explain. And then, you know, we come together as a group of five and, and, and we discuss it. And I, I feel it's tough on the fifth one unless it's an obvious fifth person that's going for experience either for themselves or taking a younger horse to a bigger show definitely and something i've always been interested in is how do shefter keeps uh pick the order of the nation's cup because you know some will try and start with their strongest rider and some will try and finish with the strongest rider what do you think is your preferred tactic um i think you've hit the nail on the head there you you do try to start strong and have somebody that's really cool um, that's the fourth rider in line because invariably they, in the second round, they know what they need to do when they go in the ring. And some riders can't take that pressure and some some riders can. So you look at the experience of, of the rider and of what horse they're riding as well, temperament. And sometimes the, the ground comes into play. You know, a lot of the Nations Cups are on grass and um, it dep depends weather conditions as well. Yeah, definitely. And you'd have to say as well, it's, you know, rider's preference because famously Nick Skelton always goes first, doesn't he? On the Nations That's Cup. right. Nick um, is very interesting because Nick always puts himself out to go first. He doesn't like to watch. He gets he gets good nerves, but he you know years and years ago it did get to him a little bit, and Nick would be one that would agree with that, and he just likes to walk it, know his plan, go in there, and nobody can carry it out better than Nick, you know, first out the gate, um, brilliant. Definitely, and, and... somebody ice cool like John or or Scott going last. Yeah, yeah, and you know just. Going back a bit, to get on a team, how does an up-and-coming rider you know, catch your eye? What do they have to be doing? Well, consistency. I, I always look for consistency in, in riders. Um, I, you know, the clear rounds. 
if they are giving clear rounds and they're confident that they're, they're confident in the way that they they're performing um and i think on a sunday we we always look at we we always look at a sunday do you go to church on sunday you know the grand prix day if you can deliver on that day on that sunday um it's all about setting a goal and delivering on a given day and in the results you can see with riders how they work through a show and just consistently follow then their Grand Prix results that that is encouraging I think lots of riders are winners but you know they win on day one day two or nearly win day two have a fence down the next day and Grand Prix there's nothing left in the tank and we're looking for riders that um yeah, can deliver on a given day. And obviously, you know, with what you do as team manager, everybody has strengths and weaknesses. But what would you consider to be your biggest strength as chef to keep and manager? Openness, fairness, I, I would hope, transparency. Um, I, I welcome anybody to um, pick up the phone to me. I'm always available for people, you know, everybody's entitled to their own opinions. Um, and it's something that I take very seriously when, when selecting teams. So fairness and um, encouraging and motivating. Yeah. I think that's a great point to make. And as you said, you've been um, chef to keep team manager for quite some time now. If you had to pick out one particular moment that stood out for you, which one would you choose? Um, Arkham, qualifying the team in Arkham was special because we had four horses that hadn't been in that ring at the European Championships to get qualified for Rio and two riders that hadn't been in that ring. So that was real special to get that qualified. Um, but actually... I think the pinnacle would be Rio when Nick won. Yep. The, I mean, it, what he achieved, him and that horse achieved with so few performances was amazing. To, to have that goal for, for so long, and to, but to Definitely. carry it out on a given day with, against riders that were competing week in, week out, winning Grand Prix, when you look at that jump off, they were all Grand Prix winners. They were all Masters winners. And for Nick to pull it off that day, it was, it was amazing, an amazing feat that I don't, think, I don't think I'll ever witness anything like that before, especially being so involved with the lead-up to it. It was an incredible moment. And I even said when we did our favourite moments part on uh, an old podcast, it was, I said it was as a fan, was the best thing I've ever seen. It was just how everything came together on the day was just It was amazing. as though the stars were aligned, you know, even that morning yeah. um, when we walked the course, that, that um, the, the tannoid was playing and they were playing music and it was playing big star, big star. <laughs> you know, everything was just <laughs> lined up. It was just, you know, when you get out of bed in the morning and everything just goes right, it's a lovely day. And it was, it was surreal. 
Yeah, and it's a bit of a harder question. And as team manager, do you ever look back and think, you know, I might have made a mistake when selecting a team? And you're not allowed to say that choosing me for a team otherwise we're just going to end this podcast <laughs> <laughs> we've opened yourself up now <laughs> yeah. um, not when selecting a team because you pick you pick the best the very best team that is available to go to whichever venue and you have to take so many things into consideration that um, other events are happening all around the world and partnerships go to certain shows and it's far you know they're not going to change their plan to go to that one nation's cup for you so when you pick your team i always look at picking the best possible team available that um that want to go and um i think as you then if you've picked the team six weeks in advance three weeks in advance things can change you know, horses can lose form, horses can come in form. And probably somebody that was on the list to be selected for the particular show that you, you didn't even select in the one of five or four to four star um, is all of a sudden winning a couple of Grand Prix and you think, Mm-mm, didn't see that coming. Yeah. And everybody's saying, told <laughs> yeah. you so, told you so. But, you know, it's life. You can only do your best. And unfortunately, there aren't enough shows to get enough of the up-and-coming riders, new partnerships too, so they can get relaxed and natural in a team environment. So, Obviously, we touched on that earlier on about part of the job. You know, it's an amazing job, but part of it is breaking that news to riders that maybe they won't be on a particular team. How hard is that for you as a person to be the one that delivers that news? Very. Um, it, it is difficult. As I say, I've been there, so I know the feelings around that. Um, but that's part of the job and you can't please everybody. But as long as you've got reasons for it, why I've, I've left them as a number five, and sometimes it's actually to protect them as well, for them to have that experience and then be better for a Nations Cup, another Nations Cup, you know, three weeks later. And have there been any individual riders' performance while on a Nations Cup team that have made you, you know, delighted for that rider? I think there's been a lot of performances that made me delighted for the rider. And it goes, it goes from the top as well. I mean, you get Scott Brash double clear in Arkin one year, you know, with a horse coming up to the level. It's fantastic. You, I jump every fence within my, you know, it's, mm. it's part of you. I'm, I'm so passionate about it, right down from, you know, when you get somebody coming in for the first time. I can remember taking Matt Sampson along to a show for the first time, and he was double clear in Lisbon. I mean, it was amazing. Even not being double clears, some performances are fantastic. And the the riders are so relieved. And as long as I feel that I've supported them, you know, I... I, you can't do any more. 
obviously, Di, being Team GB chef to keep and the new format at the Olympics, it would be great to hear your view on it's, that. It's a real interesting one. Um, nobody likes change. And everybody's very safe with the four and the discard st- score. But what other sport does have a discard score? And with three, it's going to be really, really exciting. Really exciting. But when we, we look into the, the depth of our, our sport, if we're going to put three horses, well, we're taking four horses to Tokyo, hopefully. But to, to start three, I think the substitution should have been better. Not only that we can substitute two hours before, I think if stewards and officials do their job properly and we have an accident and overreach in the collecting ring, you should be able to bring in your your fourth rider to safeguard this as much as we can. Because it is a worry that if you go into the ring, a, um, a rain breaks or something, the whole team is out. There's, you can't sugarcoat it. You're not going to win a gold medal if one of your riders doesn't complete, which is a shame. But, you know, if they do, if luck has it on the day that everybody completes, it's going to be so exciting. I mean, the pressure on those riders is unbelievable. I think I completely agree because when we we did our part about this, didn't we, Sam? We were both in the agreement said it brings a brand new dynamic to the sport doesn't it you it's a lot easier to understand for the viewing public and we've got sometimes to think over the years show jumping has sort of lost that that we need to get spectators more involved and and watching Most it and make it more exciting i mean there, there are very few competitions that you could come in halfway through and switch the television on and not just pick up whether you're watching wimbledon the golf football rugby whatever you could pick up on whereas show jumping if you just put the television on and the team events were happening unfortunately it's very misleading to say the least with with the league Mm. because you don't know who's in the league and who isn't in the league who's taking points and then the actual competition you've got to watch a full round and see all the scores before you actually know who's who's leading and it's even hardest is it's even hard as team manager, isn't it, to know exactly who's in the lead and what you have to do. And it's all that confusion, even with the people at the top level. In my experience of jumping on youth teams, is it's, it's not always completely yes, clear even yes, for us. It is, it is a little bit of a shambles, but majority of the chefs didn't want change. Yes, yes. Really? But then, you know, we have to move on. We have to be adventurous and move on for the sport. Like you say, with people viewing, the Nations Cups can go on for so long, too many hours. When you get eight mm. teams, four riders, it's, you know, it's, it's a long time. And um, it's, it's more exciting when there's only three. I think the Globals have shown the way with it, with the finals. Definitely, I completely agree. It was really exciting that competition. I know Sam, you've always said that that was one of the your favourite things you've watched. Oh, absolutely! I think it's so exciting, um, and I think that as you both have said, we have to make the sport more modern. We have to appeal to a younger and newer audience and make it easy watching and easy to understand. And 
for the three of us who are involved in the sport, it's very easy to understand when you've been doing it and you understand it. But if you're just coming to watch for the first time, it is quite confusing with the discard and the drop score and, and how the placings work. And, and actually, maybe you're opening yourself up to more issues for the first time viewing public. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And finally, this is a, a good hypothetical question um, that we probably could do a whole segment on. But if you ha- could pick your all-time British team for a Nations Cup from any combination in British show jumping history, who would make the team? I often think about this, actually. Right. Are you <laughs> we ready? Had a, we had Have a big argument over... Um, we had a, I've, <laughs> okay, I've got mine. So, number one, Nick, big star. Ben, yep. Explosion. Scott, Santos. Yep. John, Milton. Yep. And, and Reserve. Yeah. Or my fifth, my part of my team, Caroline Bradley and Tigra. So no David Broom or Harvey Smith? No, no David Broom or Harvey Smith there, no. No, it's a tough Ooh. one, isn't it? It's a tough one. That is but, a really you know, tough one. Um, I... Yeah, you're absolutely right. Do you have one, Sam? You know, actually, it's funny listening to Die There. I was going down the same route. Um, I think Ben and Explosion, John and Milton, I wrote down, Scott and Sanctos. I actually only thought of three. Um, Fourth, who would be my fourth? God, there's so many to choose from. I feel so bad leaving David off. Absolutely. Um, He's the most decorated rider, I think, almost ever. Um, Yeah. But I, I don't know who you'd take off. Whether I think you've got to have John and Nick in, um, and then I think it's between uh, Ben. I think Ben, after obviously, explosion is the most amazing at the moment. But he hasn't, hasn't had, the had the career. career. That's quite right. I think mm. it's because at the moment, you know, he's in the forefront of our mind. You know, he yeah. hasn't had the career, and and the depth of success as David or or the other mm. horses, but um, I think because he's in the front of the mind. But Sanctos, I mean, yeah. Sanctos was amazing. The clears it won. I think yeah. London was a trampoline for that horse's success. It started in London. Yeah. You know, it started with uh, a gold medal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, I, I think I'd have to agree with you, as but, hard as that would but be. But David is special. Uh, it, mm. I might have to have, yeah. Yeah, I know. I might have to have some angry Gosh, I'm going. I'm going. I'm not going to have my phone today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. David was brilliant on so many, wasn't he? Sportsman Philco. Yeah. I mean, going back, Mister Softy, mm. that was, a, you know, but yeah, he was. He was true, truly a great. I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much, Di, for joining us today. We've had a, a, it was a pleasure talking to you, and we could talk for ages. But thank, thank you, you so much. And that's it for this week's episode. We've heard some amazing insight from two really important figures in the sport. So make sure you check out our social media channels, search the full course SJ podcast to find us. And there might be a competition launching very soon.